Bible reading today is taken from Acts chapter 10, verses 1 to 23. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier, who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Uh, Well, we live in a world that is full of racially charged issues. Um, And no, it's not just a media beat-up. The Black Lives Matters protests in the United States and in other parts of the world as well, um, but they've exposed in particular just how divided and troubled uh, the nation of the States is, particularly on issues of race. Um, If you have noticed, if you've been following the uh, World Cup coverage, uh, it's currently being held in Qatar, or Qatar, depending on who's pronouncing it. Um, And the whole uh, tournament has been sort of shrouded in controversy. And one of the big issues that's come up 
uh, is how the migrant workers are treated in that country, in particular as they built uh, all of these very grand stadiums for the football tournament. It's estimated that some 6,000 of them have been killed in workplace accidents over that time. Uh, but it's shone a light on the pay and the conditions that are very much like uh, a form of modern slavery in that land. Uh, but we've got our own issues, don't we? Australia is something of a contradiction. We're celebrated as a great multicultural success story. Uh, but if you grab a random sample of people in this country and ask them to discuss an issue like an Indigenous voice to Parliament or our immigration and refugee policies, whether or not we should be repatriating ISIS brides from Syria, you'll discover that we're kidding ourselves if we think that prejudice belongs to a bygone era. Now, we don't like to think of ourselves as a racist nation, uh, but if you ask any Indigenous Australian or a recent migrant to this country about their experiences, many of them will have shameful stories to tell of racist treatment here. Now, European people don't have a monopoly on racism. I think we've seen that already with the example of Qatar. Um, occasionally think tanks come along and do an assessment on just how racist countries are and they release these lists of um, relative racism within different countries. I think it's a pretty subjective measure and different reports throw up different countries. But one thing that consistently comes out in these sorts of reports is that, well, no one group of people in the world has a monopoly on this. Uh, countries from the Middle East and Asia and Africa and Europe, Eastern Europe in particular, some of my heritage, um, they all come up like a rash on these sorts of reports. Now, I'm not going to give you a list of the most racist countries. I don't want to give you another reason to dislike people from those countries. Uh, but racial tensions, <clears throat> racial issues, well, sadly, they're not rare. Um, and they're certainly not new. Uh, the Book of Acts leans into that tension. Uh, in fact, the very passage that we're looking at today is based around this, uh, the racial, religious and cultural divide that existed between the Jews and everybody who is not a Jew, and that's who the Gentiles are. That divide that exists is, in fact, threatening to stall the mission that God has given his people to take the good news of the gospel to the world. And so this morning, we're going to see what the gospel of Jesus has to say about these things. I'm going to think about some of the implications for that has for what a church should look like, what our church should look like, uh, but in particular, how our own hearts should be. God's going to ask us to examine our attitudes towards those in our community who might be different from us and to consider if some of our attitudes may in fact be in conflict with him, in conflict with his gospel, in conflict with what he wants for his people. Now, as I said, tensions and divisions around racial and cultural differences are nothing new. 2,000 years ago, first century Palestine, where the gospel uh, first goes out, um, I'd suggest that they were probably even more open about their prejudices than we are in our times. And it certainly presented a unique problem for the church in its early days. You can identify the problem from just even a couple of verses that we, well, one of which we read, one of which we haven't yet, um, in uh, this chapter, chapter 10 of Acts, verse 28, uh, says this. This is Peter talking to 
uh, Cornelius and the people that are gathered here in his household when he goes to visit. And he says to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. Uh, And then the second reading I've got there is from Acts chapter 11 when uh, Peter goes back to Jerusalem and explains to them what has happened and we'll get into that in a moment. But look at what Peter uh, says as he tries to explain his actions. It says, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticised him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. So here's the problem for these Jewish Christians who've been entrusted with the task of bringing the gospel to the very ends of the earth. How do you share the message of Jesus with people that you can't even visit in their homes? How do you share the message of Jesus with people you can't share a meal with? People that you view as fundamentally unclean? Well, the answer is not very well. And so God sends uh, Peter to the house of Cornelius to bring about a change in thinking, to bring about a change uh, and a course in correction for where uh, the mission and the task of the church is going. There's this great turning point right here in Acts chapter 10. And we see God prod and in fact command uh, Christians, including Peter, to take the gospel beyond their own community, to, to prepare them to take this message out to the rest of the world. It's Peter who has to learn this lesson first, um, no doubt so that he can lead from the front on this matter. If the gospel is going to go where God wants it to, the leaders in the church are going to have to get past this idea that being Jewish still matters. And God does that through a tablecloth. Have a look at verse 9, where we read what Peter sees when he's up on, on the roof, he's visiting a man named uh, Simon the Tanner in the place of a town called Joppa, uh, and he's having a bit of a kip before lunch, and in his sleep, God sends him a dream, a vision. Um, so pick it up, verse 11 of chapter 10, goes this way. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And immediately the sheep was taken back to heaven. So Peter has this vision of this great big, I'll call it a tablecloth, being lowered down from heaven. And on it are all sorts of animals that Peter would never have eaten as a Jewish man. Things like reptiles, birds, pigs. Uh, These are all animals, foods that were not kosher, were forbidden for Jewish people to eat. And God speaks to Peter and tells him to kill and eat. Uh, Peter says, no thank you. Uh, He says, I've never eaten any unclean foods and I never will. Now remember, he realises that this is God talking to him and yet he's still arguing. We're told this happens three times over. Uh, God tells Peter what to do, Peter argues with God uh, and then eventually the tablecloth is taken away. Uh, Peter's good with sets of three um, and we see the three repeating again here. I don't know if Peter's just slow or if there's some other symbolism going on in that but 
it is curious. It also seems extraordinary to me that Peter might think he somehow knows better than God on this front. But let's remember for a second that this is no small thing that God is asking Peter to do. Uh, Peter and all the Jewish people took this stuff seriously. And so they should. It was embedded into the law of God. And God is now telling Peter that the rules have changed, uh, that he's declaring all food clean and it's time for him to tuck in. Well, when the vision ends, Peter, we're told, is sitting there on the roof pondering what he'd just seen, thinking about what all this means, and he's startled by a knock at the door. Coincidentally, at his house have arrived some Greek men and they've come to invite Peter to the home of a man named Cornelius, uh, their boss. Now, at the start of chapter 10, we meet Cornelius, uh, a Roman centurion, we're told, an important man. Uh, and he's introduced to us in this way at the start, right at the beginning of our reading in chapter 10. It says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Uh, Cornelius is held up to us as a a God-fearing man, a good man, a devout and generous bloke, a man who prays regularly to God. Now, with the language that's used here, um, we can sort of deduce a couple of things about him. Firstly, he's not Jewish, we know that much, um, and also he's not a full convert to Judaism. This language of being a, a God-fearing man means that he had a, a trust in the God of Israel, um, but that he hadn't fully converted to Judaism and all that went along with that. Uh, but he's someone that God uh, recognises and, in fact, sends an angel to visit in order to tell him to send for Peter. Uh, Peter's going to bring a message to him. Uh, and so that's what he does. He gets a couple of his servants and one of his soldiers, sends them off to Joppa, uh, and they arrive at the house where Peter's staying the following day. Peter, with a bit of help from God, agrees to go with these men back to Cornelius's house um, and when he arrives, uh, we see a few things happen. Uh, firstly, Cornelius falls at Peter's feet, um, and Peter quickly corrects him, tells him that he's only a man himself, uh, something that all church leaders, especially one sitting in the Vatican, would do well to remember. Uh, but Peter enters this man's home, and when he gets there, he finds a large crowd gathered. Cornelius was obviously keen for all of his family, all of his friends, to hear what Peter has to say. Uh, and Peter expresses something of his discomfort at this point. Have a look at what he says in verse 28. It says, uh, Peter declares to all of them, he says, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Notice there how Peter's joined the dots. God gave him a vision about unclean foods on a tablecloth, but Peter's appreciating that the lesson that God wanted him to teach was really about people. See, the Gentiles were never to be seen again as unclean people, people to be avoided, people to be seen as lesser. And Peter says as much when he gets into his sermon in verse 34. Read on a little bit further, it says, Peter began to speak, and he says, I now realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism, 
but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. The wheels are turning for Peter. He's starting to think through the implications of what this means. What does it actually mean that Jesus is truly Lord of all? Well, if he's Lord of all, then the gospel is for all. It's for everyone. Salvation is for all people. And the church itself belongs to everyone. Peter's realising what it means that God does not show favouritism, but accepts people from every nation. Peter goes on to share the gospel with him. He tells them about Jesus. And as he's speaking, we're told that God sends his Holy Spirit on those that are responding in faith. Cornelius and his whole household, we're told, respond in faith and receive the Spirit, just as the Jewish and previously the Samaritan believers had done. The Jewish believers can hardly believe it. Have a look at verse 45. The circumcised believers who'd come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. They're shocked. They don't quite comprehend what's going on, I don't think. Uh, And, well, you get a sense of the casual racism there, don't you? Even on Gentiles. Can you believe it? Well, Peter insists that they get baptised in water as well, and so they are. And in this act, God demonstrates to, well, both Peter, all of the Jewish believers that were with him, as well as the Gentiles, that there is a new covenant that a new age has dawned, a new kingdom has arrived. There is a church now that includes both Jews and Gentiles on the same footing. They share in the same blessings and they have the very same standing in God's eyes. Being a child of God is no longer related to your birthright. It's open to all on the same basis through trust in Jesus Now, just so there can be no doubt about who's behind all of this, God gives it that vivid demonstration of sending his spirit uh, onto the people in that moment. And Peter will later relay this back to people in Jerusalem when they're kind of quizzing him about this episode, trying to figure out what does all this mean. And this is Peter's conclusion in verse 17 of chapter 11. He says, so if God gave them, that is the Gentiles, if he gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, Who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? That seems to win over even the most fervent sceptics. And they say in verse 18, uh, well, so then, even to Gentiles, there it is again, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, I don't doubt that Peter and the other apostles and the other believers knew in theory that the salvation Jesus had provided was not just for them, was not just for the Jewish people, but their food laws, their religious traditions, and maybe just a bit of good old-fashioned racism was getting in the way. Peter had to learn not to let those cultural differences or his own religious practices get in the way of him sharing the good news about Jesus with others. It was always about much more than the food laws. It's about salvation itself. It's about who can be a child of God and on what basis. 
Now, sadly, this is not the last we're going to hear about this Jew-Gentile tension, either in the book of Acts or in the rest of the New Testament. It's an issue that plagues the church in its early years, this gulf that exists between these two very different communities that Jesus is forging together into this one church in him. I kind of think it's a bit like trying to make a salad dressing. Lemon juice and olive oil, they will resist being brought together. I mean, the end result is delicious, but it takes some work to combine them. And the church has to go through this process of figuring out what it means for them to be one in Christ. And it's a particularly difficult lesson for the Jewish believers to grapple with. Now, the issues that we see on display here in Acts, they are very particular. Let's acknowledge that. You know, it, it's particular to Jews and Gentiles and, and their period in history. Uh, but I have no doubt that we can fall into a very similar trap when it comes to placing unnecessary and unhelpful barriers in front of people when it comes to sharing the gospel with them. And we can look at Peter and think, well, isn't he a bit thick to take so long to realise what this means, that, that the gospel is for all people. But I think it'd be fair to say that plenty of churches today are not much better. Now, our issue won't be the same. I think it'd be rather odd if we insisted that a person needed uh, to practice Judaism in order to be saved, given the fact that, well, as far as I know, we're all a bunch of dirty, unclean Gentiles. Although I've got a little bit Jewish on my grandmother's side, so maybe I'm the exception. But often, I think we can have all kinds of other criteria that we either implicitly or explicitly put in front of people to suggest that these are preconditions for coming to faith in Jesus before they can be considered a proper Christian. Sometimes these are barriers simply to us giving people our time, our attitude towards them. Sometimes it may be because people aren't from the right kind of background or have the right sort of education, or they just simply don't share the same interests as you. But sometimes there can be a racial edge to it as well. People speak a strange language or have a strong accent, haven't been in this country for long enough, whatever that means. People have the wrong skin colour or wear different kinds of clothes. Now, sometimes these things are just barriers to friendship with others, barriers to having fellowship with other people, things that prevent us from giving certain people our time, our help, or our love. But that's not really less of a problem, is it? Because if they're things that actually prevent us from developing a relationship with people who are like that, different to me, then surely it's a hindrance to the gospel itself, isn't it? If as God's people we're in possession of this life-giving message, the good news about Jesus, if God has said he wants to use us, in fact, this is how he's going to bring his message to the world, through his people, then it's really not good enough for us to kind of put a line through some people. For Peter and his fellow Jews, their cultural hang-ups, their religious exclusivism was holding back the gospel. Perhaps yours is too. And if that is in any way true, you need to get over it 
Do you know that your heart is hard or cold towards people of a certain race or culture? That's something that needs to be repented of. Isn't that the point God wanted to make to Peter? Three times over he had to tell him. Peter insisted, I'm never going to eat anything unclean. God was telling him he needed to get over it. He needed to get over himself. He had to learn that there are more important things at stake, that the game had changed. The gospel is a message for everyone because Jesus is Lord of everyone. And he's still doing that very work, calling people from every nation, from every country, from every culture, from every language group, calling on them to acknowledge him as Lord, to find salvation in Jesus' name. Before God, we all have the same need of forgiveness. And we can only find it in Jesus' name. It's irrelevant what country you come from. Now, my family heritage, perhaps like yours, is all over the place. Um, you might suggest the word mongrel would be appropriate. There's a bit of Russian, a bit of Ukrainian. Yeah, I know that's a problem, isn't it? Uh, Scottish, English, uh, like many Australians, uh, it's a complicated story. But it's God's great plan that his church is made up of people from many different cultures and nations. And it belongs to all who own Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. And that's what the church should and, in fact, does look like, even if we don't always give expression to it. So I think sometimes we accept and take on the task of evangelism seriously. You know, we do try and reach out to people from cultural backgrounds different to our own, um, and people from our own background too, for that matter. But I think sometimes when people come to faith in Jesus and um, come into fellowship uh, with what you might call the dominant culture in a country, there's an expectation that people need to adopt the culture along with the gospel. And I think that's because we inherently make this mistake that somehow the church belongs to us. That's certainly what the early Christians were thinking, the Jewish Christians, that the church belonged to the Jewish community. And so that any Gentiles coming in had to adopt Jewish customs and practices and laws. They thought that it came as sort of a package with the good news about Jesus. But it doesn't. The church belongs to all of us not just the dominant culture, certainly not a Western culture. So we need to be careful not to confuse what we do at church with our own cultural practices or make the mistake of assuming that uh, somehow what we do at church or how we function as a Christian community, that the way we do it is sort of the only way it can or should be done or even that it's the best way of living together as God's people, of even giving expression to what it means to be a part of God's people. This is not our little club. It's not even a vehicle for preserving our cultural heritage. This is Jesus' church. And so it needs to be open to all. And for our part, we need to be willing to adapt, to flex, to change, to incorporate, to reflect the diversity which is within our culture and that we ought to hope to see reflected within the life of, well, any church. 
And if you can't get on board with that, well, I think there's a warning in this passage that you'll find yourself in a rather unfortunate position. As Peter put it, who was I to think I could stand in God's way? 